This episode is brought to you by RxBar. Visit rxbar.com forward slash elevator and enter the promo code elevator for 25% off your first order. Recovery Elevator, episode 148. I know that this has been a, a slow snowballing effect that gradually got bigger and bigger and, and compounded itself to the point where my uh, I was no longer who I once was and it impacted everything. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 1,176 days. On today's podcast, we've got Randy. He was sober for 515 days until he hit the reset button on September 25th, 2017. Currently, Randy is on the waiting list for a new liver. The interview with Randy is a lengthy one, so I'm going to forgo my topic, but I want to talk about three things in his email that he initially sent to me on October 31st, 2017, which are extremely important. What I'm about to read is basically the core ingredients to alcoholism. Number one, we must have a genetic predisposition to become an alcoholic if we drink enough alcohol. But the three things that really stir up that concoction is, number one, a sense of denial that we don't have a problem. And number two is we have a lack of coping mechanisms. We don't properly know how to deal with stress, with loss, with anxiety, all of the above. And number three, self-loathing. Self-loathing is almost always a part of addiction. I also want to preface the interview with all the interviews on the Recovery Elevator podcast are pet-friendly. At times during the interview, you might hear his dog triumph pawing and tugging at a bone, but hey, that's just how it goes. These interviews are raw, they're unscripted, and I think it actually adds to the podcast. Before we hear from Randy, let's hear from today's sponsor, RX Bar. RX Bar is a whole food protein bar. What does that mean? Well, their bars are made with 100% whole ingredients. They want to be transparent and upfront with customers, which is why they label the core ingredients egg whites, dates, and nuts on the front of every package, and ingredients that make up texture and taste on the back. That would be 100% real cacao, coconut, etc. Beyond being a go-to snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX bars actually taste delicious. Now, I can personally attest to this. I had RX Bar send me a box before I accepted the sponsorship. I tried all the flavors, and they're all amazing. Mom, Dad, sorry for the spoiler alert, you're getting RX Bars for stocking stuffers this year, and probably next year as well. So RX Bars core ingredients do all the talking. It's simply like eating three egg whites, two dates, and six almonds, but with no BS. For 25% off your first order, go to rxbar.com forward slash elevator, and be sure to use the promo word elevator at checkout. Again, go to rxbar.com forward slash elevator, use the promo word elevator. And now let's hear from Randy. Randy, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing, Paul? I'm great. Thanks for asking, Randy. Let's get right into this. Uh, Randy, how long have you been sober? Let's see. It would be technically since September 26th. I think that's 49 days after a year and a half of sobriety due to, uh, obviously, uh, survival. Um, sure. A, a need to survive. I, I've been in survival mode for the last two years. And listeners, I get a lot of emails, which is the best part about doing the Recovery Elevator podcast. I love reading them. I can't respond to all of them, unfortunately, but Randy sent me a long email and I'm like, man, I got to get this guy on the podcast. It's, it's, uh, it's inspirational and you're in the middle of it, Randy. You're definitely in the middle of it still. But before we get any further, 
let's give listeners a little background about yourself. Tell us maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, how old are you, and what do you like to do for fun, Randy? Sure. I was born and raised in Wyoming, Casper, Wyoming, the raging metropolis of, and uh, had a pretty uh, solid upbringing, good parents, then went to school in Colorado, uh, University of Northern Colorado, Colorado State University there, business degree, and then worked in Denver for, for a few years. But then I started to play music. Uh, music has been part of my life since I was very young. And uh, I started to play around Colorado uh, amongst the scene that was here at that time. And uh, I had an opportunity to move out to Portland, Oregon, and that's where I was. Came back here because of some medical stuff, which we'll probably talk about. But that's basically it, what I like to do for fun. I like to read. I like to uh, play music, of course. I like to uh, take my dog, obviously, for a walk and 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 live life in a much much more healthy fashion than than I did for a long period of time. But yeah, my really my passion, uh, I guess, everything kind of revolves around what I do uh, from an artistic standpoint, musically. Okay, and let's let's get right into this because I've got so many questions. I do. Okay. Okay. And, uh, and I actually want to talk about the creative part, how your passion has come back for music. And we're going to try to get some of your music in this podcast episode, which is great because we've got the artist and you can give me permission, no copyright issues. So this is great. Um, Pretty but, easy. Yeah. But Randy, right now, as we speak, you're waiting, you're on a waiting list and tell us more about that. Yeah. So two years ago, actually three years ago, July, sorry, man, it's been a blur. July 13th, uh, 2015. That's correct. That's correct. July 13th, 2015, I was on my first uh, honeymoon trip. We'd gone to Wyoming to see my family and we were going to hang out in Denver. And my drinking had some early signs within my relationship. But at the same time, just like it is with a lot of people, I mean, it's just part of what we did. And it was so prevalent that I needed that. And then because of my addictive brain, I think, which I, if I, through years of therapy, I've kind of realized I've always had one, the addictive brain just needed more at all times. And um, it got to the point where it was starting to physically uh, affect me. Not was it, it just wasn't impacting my emotions. It, it, it was it wasn't just impacting, you know, my productivity. It was impacting how I physically looked. And I, I bring that up only because you realize that this world out here, they go based upon appearances, sadly, before they get to know you. Right. Mm -hmm. So when people see you and you look sick, that's when I really understood that. Like, I, I remember seeing the, the my wife's eyes, like looking at me in the morning one day and I and she almost looked like she was scared of me. And I would, you know, it, it was not that kind of dynamic, but she just saw, I could see there was fear in her eyes that that my body was transforming, uh, my parents was transforming, everything about it was transforming because my liver was failing. And the liver itself, because it controls so much, it's just a filtration. There's no joke when they say you are what you eat, but it's such a fil filter, huge filter of your body. Anything that goes in that bloodstream is going to impact your skin. It's going to impact your uh, overall energy levels, everything. I mean, it's just, I've learned way too much about that organ that anyone should ever want to know unless they're paid for it. But, but the thing is, is that when that happened, that's when people started to really be out of the, deni the denial that, that, that I had a problem. 
And I and I did have a problem. I knew it. I can't. When I look at your questions, like what was that one point where I realized I didn't? I had a problem. I can't tell you. <laughs> I know that this has been a, a slow snowballing effect that gradually got bigger and bigger and, and compounded itself to the point where my uh, I was no longer who I once was, and it impacted everything. It hijacked my brain. It hijacked the limbic system, uh, which, as you know, like when you drink. You know, not only do you use focus with your motor skills, but you also lose focus of your emotions, your acuity, your sharpness, everything starts to just become blurry. And sure. and that's where my brain was. It was just drowning in it. And she saw three little bumps on my anniversary around my stomach. We thought that they were hernias initially, but I was going to have them looked at. I went back and, and I talked to a doctor there and uh, they said, well, these look like cancerous. And that freaked me out, of course. Yeah. But uh, they did they did a scan, a CT scan, and he came back and he said, "You've got to stop drinking. You're going to die from this. You you've got early signs of liver disease." Wait, did he come back and ask you any questions, or did he just straight up say, "Randy, you got to stop drinking"? It, it, there was no joking about it. I mean, he was firm. Sure. Okay. Now, my deaf ears, my deaf alcoholic ears, mm-hmm. didn't want to hear that. No, and, not at all. And, no, and 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 you know, I was like, oh, I'll go talk, get a second opinion. I'll stall. I didn't even bring it up to my family yet. I was trying to weave my way out of even having to have the conversation. And then I think it was about two months later, my wife called my parents, and they all agreed something's not adding up. And Jessica, my wife, then she just said, he he's just drinking uh, all the time, and. My mom asked her pretty significant question is like, when was the last time he played his guitar? And she said, I can't remember. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's when, you know, you're spiritually, mentally, and physically impacted by this disease, alcoholism, when a, your body physically is shutting down, but B your, your passions, your hobbies and emotions are just crushed. And I've been there. It's a terrible feeling. Fortunately, I have not been there with the liver, but yeah, I mean, thanks for bringing us up to speed with that. And it sounds like you got sober for 515 days out of survival mode. And, and am, I, am I right with that? Was that a year and a half you said? Yeah, it was. So May 6th of 2016 was definitely an impasse uh, where I was about inches away from death, as you, you saw in an email, read in the email that I sent mm-hmm. you. So I, before that, though, I had gone to rehab once after my parents intervened and uh, and Jessica did too. And I ended up having to go to the hospital because I had a detox and I was also taking, uh, antidepressants and uh, just all kinds of stuff that, you know, which, oh, yeah, my dog's mad at me. Uh, <laughs> Triumph. These are, these are pet friendly interviews, everybody. Yeah. So anyways, why were you such a drunk daddy? Um, <laughs> uh, so anyways, I'm at the uh, hospital and I had my first seizure. Ah! Yeah, I had my first seizure. And then I had to stay there for five days. I I was in and out of it. My dad was there the whole time. Jessica had to work and she would come uh, before and after. It was awful. I was a flight risk. The the seizure had just, it had a serious impact on my motor skills to the point where I had to go to a physical rehabilitation to recover from it. Sure. And so anyways, you would think that would be enough. I went to rehab Brookside in Portland, Oregon, 
Brookside had a very strong emphasis on mindfulness and it was almost holistic in its uh, approach. There was two separate um, uh, clinics. One was for people in rehab uh, and then there was one who were considered uh, who just for mental health, overall mental health. The mental health clinic had a psychiatrist, people getting medication, stuff like that. My body still was was trying to shake off what what it had just gone through. And so going to a place where I wasn't getting clinically treated and given that attention that was needed wasn't to my benefit, even though I survived it, I did very well in rehab. I actually came out of it on edge and I was still feeling, you know, I just didn't feel right. Well, this was only uh, 30 days also, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, that's not enough for, for anybody. Yeah. I mean, you need 60, 90 days at least. Yeah, exactly. And so even though I put on a good game face, I went back to work. Part of the problem that I, I did have was my job was fairly stressful and it was middle management and, and I love my team and the people I work with, but it was a stressful job and it got to me and that's part of it. And I ended up relapsing uh, right around Thanksgiving. And then my wife had to pull teeth for me to admit it. And I did. And then the next thing you know, we have this big conversation about, you know, you're stressed out. You need to start looking for another job. This can't work. And so then the next day I ended up quitting my job without even talking to her about it. That was the last straw for her. So she, cause I, I compromised our security and sure. like, you know, but honey, that's, that's what you suggested, right? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I also don't um, understand women, Randy, <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, she had a point, like, let's do this yeah. together. Don't just go out there and just <laughs> yeah, she had to have a point. Every, yeah. Uh, and, and I get it. My judgment was very poor and it's still, I was not. I don't think I was mentally ready to take responsibility for my own actions at that time. And that's what rehab's supposed to start is a foundation, a foundation of, of redeveloping uh, yourself. But I wasn't there yet. And so what ended up happening was just a heartbreak of, of a, a period between the two of us for about six months, uh, me fighting for, uh, you know, our marriage and then, uh, obviously with a job looking for a job stuff like that it got to the point where i was drinking i mean I was just drinking. let me just phrase this differently though at that point in your life you're fighting for your marriage you're fighting for your livelihood your financial resources you're also fighting for your life with your liver i mean that that's like a movie script right there well i would go i would i would go from periods i would go from periods of giving up wanting to give up sure. I, I, and 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 then the next day I'd be like, what the hell's wrong with you? Pull your pull your shit together, and and you know prove everybody wrong. But then it'd take the slightest little, you know, uh, obstacle or hurdle that I couldn't achieve or get over, you know, whether it was a rejection of a job or or just you know my wife saying this is, not, you know, moving out stuff like that. I mean, all it did was trigger what the only way I knew how to cope. <laughs> And when you don't care about, you lose everything that you have in life, you've mm -hmm. considered, right? When you've, you've figured out that you are solely responsible for destroying everything around you, I, I had no other desire to live at that point. And so I didn't care. I just 
I drank, I drank, I drank. Somehow I maintained a, um, an appointment for an upper endoscopy. And uh, I explained that to you uh, in that email what mm-hmm. that procedure is. And it's basically um, blood vessels that are within, uh, in layman's terms, if you will, within uh, your esophagus that fill up that can't hold the blood because your liver is not fil- filter- filtering the blood that needs to be filtered through. <laughs> it's developing in pockets that could easily disrupt. Sure, and rupture. And, yeah, and next thing you know, you're internally bleeding. Mm-hmm. Right. So I did have that procedure. They found a pull-up, which was just a mass uh, in my digestive system. And it was uh, – they removed it, and they used a clamp to actually keep it from – eventually well they wanted it to clot and heal so they put a clamp in there to keep it together until that happened well my body was in a position with its blood it was so thin that it couldn't clot anything mm-hmm. i mean if i had a bleed out it was bad and it could have been just from a you know my dog fighting me who knows mm-hmm. and and it would go everywhere <laughs> and so that procedure because they did a blood test three or four days prior to they looked at my coagulation they shouldn't have done it if they were going to do it they should have used done an infusion prior to anyways that clip snapped and for two days i internally bled and i uh from may 4th to may 6th i was i felt awful I, I I thought I was attributing it to being hungover or whatever, and then I was like, oh, I got to bite the dog. So we, I continued to drink for these two days. And then after that is when I started to bleed profusely uh, on the 6th. I went to the restroom, and next thing you know, blood started coming out of my nose and my mouth uh, uncontrollably. So that, that started to happen. I didn't know what to do. Clearly, in retrospect, I would have known what to immediately have done, but the fact that I debated it tells you where my head was. But calling 911 was eventually what I did do. And I got in the gurney, walked in, and laid down. And then and about two minutes later, I seized up, and I didn't wake up for five days. Oh, my gosh. And that was, that was uh, all because you were just internally bleeding for two days and drinking on top of that. Am I right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Uh, the perfect storm. They found a liter and a half of blood in my stomach. I walked, I, I, I didn't walk. I was admitted with a 3.4 hemoglobin, I believe. And it, you know, average for a male should be 14. Uh, that's how much blood I lost. And um, I, I shouldn't have survived. They put me on a ventilator, uh, feeding tube, propofol, fentanyl, uh, to keep me, they had to induce a coma to keep me from seizing up hmm. and and then get me straight with, uh, you know, obviously cycling blood. They had to cycle in, uh, I believe, three liters of blood and uh, just to keep me alive. And I woke up in ICU in the most terrifying place. Like, I, I had no idea how I got there. And so so uh, when, it, when is this, though? Is this 2015? This is 2016. 16, okay. Yeah, so this is May. I, I woke up May 13th, 2016. And is this before your 515 days of sobriety? Yes. Okay, okay. But that was the tipping point prior to that. Perfect. Okay, so, so I bear, I, I woke up and I, I was, I had no idea what was going on. I had all these things hooked up to me. I was alone. And then I tried to get out because it was just a, 
instinctive reaction. And these two nurses came in and they just pulled me to the ground and they were like, you need to lay down. You're going to seize up again. Um, they started telling me that my parents were there and I was like, I don't believe you. Where am I? Anyways, 13 days later, I check into, I my wife said, you got to go. She just flat out said, you got to go. I love you, uh, but I can't do this. So my parents uh, checked me into West Pines uh, rehab here in Colorado and I was defeated. I mean, I, I got a lot out of that rehab just by the people I met, but I had shut down completely. Yeah. And, well, that sounds like a low of all lows, Randy. Shutting down <laughs> is probably what most people, including myself, would have done. <laughs> so I was there and then went back home to Casper, Wyoming with my family because I didn't have any place else to go and, you know, stayed in a fairly controlled environment the large majority of the summer. I, I just did not know what to do with myself. So after that, uh, it was about July, and, and I knew that the, the, the marriage was done, even though I'd been clinging to every last hope. Um, I was like, okay, I, I, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to start writing. But when I tried to play my guitar, it was very awkward, and, and my dexterity had eroded. And so just eye-hand coordination, all of that had to be retrained. And it was, you know, it was a challenge, but I, all of a sudden I had focus again and that little addictive brain, that obsessive brain of mine just transferred that energy to that. Sure. And as many people do through exercise, many people find, you know, it's just, you can't change our DNA in that respect. So you just have to route it, you know, use your powers for good, not for evil. <laughs> but, 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 but the thing is, is that I, and then I had to retrain my voice as well, but then I started to write and write and write like I never because I, I had plenty to say and I didn't care what anybody thought and my my friends were very supportive the one person in my life that I loved and wished was there was not but that was part of going through what I was going through and it lended itself to some of the most well in my opinion some of the best music I've written but that didn't stop <laughs> uh the long uh movie that uh, took place um that you would you could easily call my life. I the damage in my body was was enough to where it was susceptible to anything. You know my immune system, uh, got my gastrointestinal, uh, you know problems from years of drinking uh, were you know were there, mm -hmm. and I wasn't getting the treatment I needed in Casper. And so a gallbladder infection came uh, around Thanksgiving a year ago, actually today. Uh, and I was in the hospital for five days for that. And then encephalopathy, uh, I was not doing well with my, I don't know if any, have you talked about encephalopathy before? Encephalopathy. I have, I have not. Yeah. Oh, okay. Encephalopathy. And believe me, it took me 10 years to say that word right. <laughs> encephalopathy is what happens to the brain when there's so much ammonia from drinking. Okay. Uh, and it, you're, once again, your liver's failing you. So it's not filtering out the toxins and all that stuff. Next thing you know, ammonia is going to the brain. What it does is it screws with knowing who you are, uh, basic functions like brushing your teeth can be hard. Mm. Remembering, like I, I couldn't remember how to operate a remote control whenever I would have an, an episode. I couldn't make a salad. I, I mean, I was, I was uh, disabled mentally whenever these episodes would occur. And the thing is, you don't know, it's hard, it's really hard for the family member 
or your person that's watching you to see when it's when that has started because it's so gradual next thing you know that person's completely out of their head and so they give you medication for that but you have to stay on top of it and uh, the problem with with people who have a drinking problem or had one is that they're they tend to not be the best about sticking to a routine other than one and it wasn't like i was drinking but yeah i was relaxed with my medication and and stuff like that to where I was putting my, my body in a susceptible situation where it wasn't just getting the regimen that it needed and my levels were getting out of whack. So they flew me down to, uh, they couldn't help me in Casper, Wyoming after a serious encephaloptic episode. They flew me down to, to uh, UCH, University of Colorado, Colorado Hospital, and they have one of the best transplant uh, teams there. And so I... I went there and they weren't quite sure what to do with me because they thought I was going in because I had some issue with my gallbladder or something. But just by mere fate, I was I ended up on the seventh floor where they treat people with liver disease. And the doctor came in and she saw me. She's like, we looked at your initial scans and you I, I don't know what to do. She goes, you need a new liver that you're not going to survive the next 90 days if you don't get one, but you haven't gone through the transplant process. I had a referral from a GI and that was it. But I had no idea that this process takes months. Sure. Because of the shortage, they want to make sure that that person is going to, you know, be a recipient of something and take care of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why, that's why it's it's not something you just go to the street corner and pick up. I mean, it's it's serious business. And there's a lot of politics involved, even if you do the hard work, and a lot of things have to come into your favor in order for it to happen. But they, she told me three months. She told my mom and dad I had two weeks, month most, but she didn't want to just destroy me. But I had three months, I was like, well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, despite, despite, you know, fighting, despite quitting drinking, it was really hard to grapple with the fact that, okay, I've made some strides. I've made progress. I'm a sober individual too late, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so because of that, what ended up happening was it was so my brain just couldn't handle these stressors. You're talking about moving, divorce, no job, drinking problem, phys like health problems. And then to hear you're going to die in 90 days, what that did is it sent my brain into a catatonic state, which I can only, it would take me another day to describe. But uh, I was in, in that for about five days. And I think I told you in the email, the best way could actually, my subconscious was very active during that time, mm -hmm. but they had no idea what was going on. People had no idea. Uh, the doctors didn't know what was going on. My family didn't know what was going on. I was just, uh, a lot of people were like, he's shutting down. He's done. And they brought the psychiatric team in. Um, and during this whole time, five days is prior to Christmas, right? Right before Christmas. I, I honestly, like, the best way to describe it was Dickens, a Christmas Carol meets, uh, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Like, Visually, that's what it looked like, wow. and and I I went through my whole past in my mind subconsciously 
where I encountered people that I had done wrong to. Mm-hmm. And they were they were there to to take vengeance of some sort. And there was all kinds of things that went through that I went through that I mean I borderline would be torture if it was reality. But what happened was is that I the psychiatric team came in and they saw the state of mind I was in, they noticed the signs and he's like, Well, he's catatonic. He's got some kind of PTSD thing going on. Let's see if this works. This is what we give to people who come back from war. And they gave me um, an anti-anxiety medication, high potency, and it just woke me up. Huh. It, it just relaxed my brain. What, what was it, that medication? Was it a benzo, diazepine? It was, it, was, it was a benzo, but it wasn't like your typical Ativan. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was... It it was it was something like that. I knew they actually had to give me Ativan uh, afterwards to keep me, you know, from freaking out. Yeah. Uh, but 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 that's that's what it was, and it relaxed my body, relaxed my brain, and on Christmas Day I woke up, and yeah. So that- <laughs> yeah. Well, let me let's let's bring it up to speed today. Is is where I imagine getting a liver is extremely difficult. In fact, I have not seen like a liver depot, a liver mart, and a livers are us anywhere. I mean, how, how does one go about that process? And like, how long have you been on, on the list? And where are we at today with that? Well, okay, so five things need to happen when you get introduced to the team. They go through a series of evaluations. They, they look at your, your body first. Obviously, can it handle this type of surgery? Because it's a, it's a serious one, of course. And then they they look at your socioeconomic factors. They look at, you know, do you have a support system that's going to help you through this? Because you can't do it alone. You it's I mean, there's no joking about that. You can't do you can't get a new liver on your own. You have to have somebody with you guiding you through. And my, my parents have basically been that. And then, you know, get sleep. Do what your doctor says. Make all your appointments take your medications as instructed, you know, and, and then every two weeks I go in, I started out every two weeks and I go in and give a blood test. They look at a blood test and that comes up with an overall MELD score, which is the, uh, uh, measurement for end stage liver disease. Okay. Zero to 40, 40 is like you're deathly ill. That's the worst you could be. So I was as high as a 35, I believe, and then uh, stayed in the early 30s um, all through, I think, January, February, March, April, J- uh, May, June. And I, I almost had it done on May uh, 6th um, of uh, this year. But what ended up happening was th- they call this a dry run because it can happen. They can actually call you. You're, you're, on, you're listed, right? Mm-hmm. Your insurance has to approve it, all that stuff. You've gone through everything. The doctors have said, we're good to go. The committee meets. They approve you for, you know, to be on the list. It's a national list. And so your MELD score determines everything. That basically says where you are on the list for that week. And once you're on the list, you go in every week, uh, go in every week, and you get your blood pulled. They pull up a score. That's what you are for that week. And on May 6th, I almost had it done, but what ended up happening was uh, they got the liver at a certain point in the process because, I mean, it's, you're talking about a 24-hour window where you need to save that organ, bring in the recipient, and then and then do it that way, and, and obviously go through the surgery. But 
the the state of the liver, the quality of the liver has to be in a good state and they don't see it until it's actually been removed from the body, mm-hmm. right? And then been inspected by the doctors here. So what ended up happening was the they couldn't save the organ and so they ended up pulling the plug on that transplant. Uh, so I went back on the list and, and, and so that's what you do. Now, unfortunately, my relapse has prolonged uh, my ability to get a liver with my doctors. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm probably not looking at a new liver for another year if if I live that long. Now, they, they say that I'll survive. They say that if my liver fails, it's going to require some kind of an event. It would require an accident of some sort or something, a fall where a bleed out would occur. If that is the case, you know, they want me here so I can be uh, taking care of at the hospital to move mountains to to save my life if they have to. Mm-hmm. But but right now I'm not currently listed on on uh, the list until I go through another period of sobriety and just make sure. Sure. And you mentioned those two things that could cause your liver to fail, your liver to fail. And I imagine a binge drinking episode would also you know put that over the edge or continue to drinking but you got five you had 515 days you you relapsed which relapse is a huge part of my story you got 49 days tomorrow you got big five zero i mean you'll build that trust up again i know your higher power is is gonna you know move mountains for you but there's a part of your email that i want to that i want to read on this interview and i want to discuss this a little bit more because you said the word earlier and i wanted to dive into that a little bit more but there's three points you said that that led to your alcoholism. And number one was my sense of denial for many years about an accelerated predisposition. You sure. said, I'm not my biological father, but I drank like him. Number two, my lack of coping mechanisms with insecurity, stress, anxiety, and depression. And number three, a severe case of self-loathing. And ladies and gentlemen, that's basically the recipe for alcoholism right there mm-hmm. in, in a nutshell. Yeah. And then when you mentioned rehab, you said – I forget the exact words, but you said it's it's where you start to rebuild your yourself. Uh, and I thought you were going to say, you know, the the coping mechanisms. And you said the word cope earlier, and that's what we all have is just completely shattered when we start the recovery process. Is a lack of coping mechanisms to deal with you, what you just mentioned: insecurity, stress, anxiety, depression, life as it happens, because it doesn't happen to us. You know, we think it does happen to us, but life just happens, and it's how we deal with this stuff. And it sounds like we you know with 515 days of sobriety, and now you're on day 49. Tomorrow's 50. You you have to have coping mechanisms. You can't make it this far without it. And how has coping mechanisms? You know, how have you built those, and what are those coping mechanisms for you? Sure. There's a few that I, I that keep me straight and narrow, for sure. Uh, okay, so if we, we're talking about how do I cope with the actual normal everyday stress of life, yeah, you know, with, without alcohol. Without alcohol, um, I think a lot of it is my brain has a tendency to just think way too far ahead, just like our, every addict on here, and then just dive into the past and just and just sit there and sulk in it. If I live in the now, right, and I and I confront things, I've gotten to the point where I can confront things one at a time instead of the daunting task of co- trying to tackle on more than one. That that is that is me specifically a problem that I've always had where I just think the worst no matter what. There's a renewed sense of optimism, a positive mindset, a positive approach. It's not forced from me because I know it's part of me, 
But when I was drinking, I was a cynic. I was pessimistic. I didn't care about anybody uh, except myself. I mean, I mean, I, I, that's not necessarily true, but you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's, you know, I think about, I almost, I have a much better moral compass, I think. And I don't know if that's maturity or whatever, but I use, use positive positivity in every way I possibly can to approach things. And I also try and live by grace under pressure. And, and, and that, that's something that I lost. And I've always prided myself in being an intelligent individual, you know, being a creative person. I have a lot of flaws, but you know, I'm, I'm darn proud of, of the, of the things that I've been able to do. But I, I do think that some of those necessary skills that we're supposed to, we need to develop when we're younger. I was missing a lot of that. Mm -hmm. And chemically, when you talk about the, the, that predisposition, uh, that I was saying, yes, it was in my DNA from both sides of the family. I know I am almost certain, uh, well, everybody, around me knows that 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 we've got a problem in our bloodline that um it's not just me you know uh and it just because of uh, you know who who we were raised by and i was raised by great parents they weren't big drinkers at all but my biological father uh, died at 36 my uh, grandfather on my mom's side uh, die or he's still alive. Sorry, but he had to quit drinking at 50. Um, they thought he was going to die then. And it just has been, it's just in my, it's just in our family. And that's what they did. That's what we do in Wyoming. I, you know, I actually had my first beer when I was two years old, but (laughs) that might be a record on the podcast. (laughs) I think it is my, my hell raising uncle decided to, uh, toy with my mom a little bit but but uh, i say that jokingly because of the fact that um i actually wasn't a drinker until i was 19 19 yeah but i do joke around with that i was like yeah it started when i was two (laughs) randy walk us through a typical day in your life how are you staying sober how are you going to get day 49 and how are you going to get 50 okay fair enough i have to have things on my list to do right and i have to stick to it there's a lot of self-discipline there and it's how much I want to get done. Cause I know that pr- productivity comes from, um, within and, and certainly doesn't come with drinking. And so I make a list of things that I have to get done that day. Um, whether it's related to recording, whether it's related to my health, whether it's related to walking the dog, going to the store. I mean, I just kind of outline everything. And the next thing you know, the day's gone a lot quicker than I thought. Had I not done that, I would have sat and looked for excuses to not do anything, you know, and God knows where my head would go at that point, because that's what happens when I'm left to my own thoughts. That's when the fear starts to come and I have to distract myself means a distraction at all times. Now, it's very hard when you get out of rehab and your brain is that fried and focus is like the last thing you can do. But if you can get over that hump, if you can get over that initial wave and just rely on people to help you, because the people will, they will help you out. They know you're suffering. If they don't understand it, then you don't need them. I, I swear, like 
it, you'd gotta be around people that will help you and, and you need to accept their help, uh, their help, which is difficult to do. It is very difficult to do. And, and I think Paul, you know, just you and I barely know each other. You're a proud guy. I'm a proud guy. We're probably both very stubborn. (laughs) And that pride can backfire and and try to get sober big time. (laughs) Yeah. And and that was my biggest problem, which is letting go. And anyways, so yeah, just the list of things that I do, uh, that, that are all devoted to being healthy and eating right. I changed my diet. I've changed just an overall positive outlook, man. That changed everything. And, and when I woke up from that state of catatonia, that was the pivot point where all of a sudden I was so relieved to be alive. That was the first time I, I it wasn't, I didn't care if I was like, I was relieved because what I had just experienced was five days of hell. And at that point I was like, I'm going to beat this thing. And that competitive fire started to brew again. And I started to really care about myself. Now, going back to what you were talking about, which is this whole thing with self-loathing, and and you brought this up in, in a recent podcast about what it can do. When you have self-compassion for yourself, it can affect everything you touch. It, it, it really does. If you loathe yourself, which we alcoholics do, it can destroy everything you touch. So, and, and, and if you get to the hormonal conversation like you've brought up before about the whole thing with um, self-compassion, I mean, it, it can do wonders. And, and what actually attributed my relapse recently was the fact that a certain person came back into my life for a brief visit. And, and because I, the, the best comparison it was, was like going to a high school reunion and you haven't seen somebody in 20 years and within two or three hours, you're acting just like you did when you were in high school. Mm-hmm. And that, it, it brought out all these emotions that I I thought were gone or thought had contained. And I did have this, I got this approach uh, with my ex-wife coming to visit me, which is what that was. And I, I'm pretty much relapsed before she landed. Wow. You know, and, but I didn't know that. I really didn't. I really didn't. Well, and yeah, I, it relapse happens way before the first drink. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so true all across the board. Uh, you know, Randy, I, we, this interview could go on for hours. This is a fascinating yeah. <laughs> story, but we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer sure. these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Go. Number one, Randy, what was your worst memory from drinking? Hands down, waking up in that hospital on May, uh, May 13th in ICU. And, and I mean, that was my worst moment uh, in life, but it was all because of my drinking. I mean, that's, that was it. That was definitely hitting rock bottom. And Randy, you mentioned earlier, this is a difficult question to answer, but try to give us just one moment, you know, an aha moment, your oh shit moment where you're like, oh no, I I can't drink normally. I knew you were going to ask me this. And (laughs) I just sat there and I was like, oh God. Uh, (laughs) There's so many, which is like the hard part, right? It's uh kind of a loaded question. Uh Uh-huh. I think I knew... I, my first detox, I think I knew then. I had gotten uh, a DUI earlier in my uh, youth at college, but, and that shit, that's usually the aha moment for a lot of people. I think when I wrote my, when I had my first detox for sure. Okay. Yeah. And that was back in, in 2013. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and Randy, 
What's your favorite resource in your cover? You've got 49 days. You had 515, 515 days before. That time is not going away. What's your favorite resource in recovery? There's a book that I look at every day, and a friend of mine gave it to me. It's called Out of the Out of the Wreck I Rise, huh. and it's a liter, literary companion to recovery. But it's basically a compilation of all of these famous writers, and I posted kind of about this last night on, on Cafe RE, but it has all these famous quotes of these people that I've either admired or I don't know about, and if I don't know about it, I've looked up. Um, but say, for example, like, you know, Eric Clapton, very famous. I would have loved to have gone to Crossroads Rehab if I could have afforded it. But, you know, I read a quote every day from this book, and sometimes I obviously have – I've read it already numerous times, but, um, you know, it's always new to me every time I read it. It's refreshing. Mm-hmm. But say, for example, my identity – this is Eric Clapton. My identity shifted when I got into recovery. That's who I am now, and it actually gives me greater pleasure to have that identity than to be a musician or anything else because it keeps me in a manageable size. When I'm down on the ground with my disease, which I'm happy to have, it gets me in tune. It gives me a spiritual anchor. Don't ask me to explain. Wow, um, Mr. Clapton just nailed that thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much sobriety and addiction in a nutshell right there. And, and uh, yeah, and next question, Randy, in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? It starts with you. It starts with you. That's, yeah, those words ring um, because it's so true and I didn't, until I actually just said, okay, I let go. That's not, that was when things started to turn around. And when my first stand in rehab, I had a very good relationship with my counselor. And he, he said, this is going to start with you. And this is going to be very hard. You let go. You got to Desperation. Go. You just, as soon as you stop getting back in that ring to fight alcohol is when you got a fighting chance. Ironically, it's so strange. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really true. And next question, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? If you are even questioning it, I would say that odds are try and stop it before it gets worse. Don't go through what I did to to learn. I mean, it is awful. It is an awful disease. And if you've got an opportunity to stop now and you're questioning whether you have a drinking, impro- drinking problem, stop. Mm-hmm. It's just not worth it. And before we depart, Randy, give listeners your own customized. You might be an alcoholic if line. I might be an alcoholic if um, I'm on my deathbed uh, with an expired liver and I still have the energy to go to the bar. <laughs> Let me look at the uh, at the at, at the paper. <laughs> yeah, that classifies. That's a pretty good one. Yeah, yeah that works. Randy, it, it shouldn't be. It should have the energy to go to the gym, right? <laughs> <laughs> Randy, keep me updated, and I know we're gonna keep in touch via Cafe Re. But let us know. Um, I, I'm curious of. of yeah, just keep me up to date with your story. It's interesting. And, and, uh, and you, you know, where can we find you? You've got some of your own music. It's, it was, what's your website? RandyCraig.net. RandyCraig.net. Check it out. Um, some great stuff there. Randy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Before we close it out with an original song created and performed by Randy, let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it was painful. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group 24 hours a day. There, you can get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. 
In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For $14 a month, you can join the conversation, be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend online meetups, attend in-person Cafe R meetups, and participate in book club. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. One of the things that Randy mentions that he got back in recovery is his passion for music. Alcohol zaps and kills our passion for hobbies. What we used to love to do to pass the time, alcohol zaps it. So it's so awesome that Randy got back into music. And to close this out, like I mentioned, we're going to play one of Randy's songs. It's awesome. So Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. Nice job, Randy. We can do this. You fall and you break into pieces A shell of a waste of mind You don't care A void of the cracks and the creases Holding me back while I'm waiting Sweep you up and chaos you go. Yeah. 